Well, it's wonderful to see all of you here this morning. If you're a guest with us today, we're delighted that you're here. And if you're joining us on SOCC.TV, we're, we're glad you're worshiping with us uh, as well this morning. Uh, we're in this series, Walk Like Jesus. Uh, we saw an example of that this morning. Uh, Liam, I loved hearing your dad sing after your baptism, and I love seeing you surrounded by family on this, the most important day of your life. But I don't want you to forget that the Bible tells us that the Heavenly Father rejoices and the angels in heaven are rejoicing as well. You see, when you walk with Jesus and you walk like Jesus, these are the moments that we celebrate throughout life. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about Jesus and the Word of God. Words have power. They always have, they always will. Words have power. The 1939 movie classic Gone with the Wind made headlines 80 years ago this year because of one word. A word that today wouldn't even raise an eyebrow in a movie, but it was the first time that word had ever been heard on the silver screen. It's called the most memorable line in cinematic history. At the movie's climax, Scarlet cries, Oh, rat, rat, if you leave, where will I go and what will I do? Rhett turns and responds coldly. Frankly, my dear, I haven't given it a whole lot of thought. <laughs> you didn't really think I was going there, did you? <laughs> but would the movie have been as memorable if that had been the line? Who knows? Because you see, well, words have power. They stir our emotion, they challenge our minds, they inspire our actions. And some words are remembered long after they were uttered, long after the author of those words has passed on. Let me, let me give you a few quotes and see if you can identify them, all right, out of history. I only regret that I have but one life to live for my, or give for my country. Nathan Hale, that's right. This is time for participation. I don't always do this in my sermon, all right, but I'm asking for you to respond at this point in time. Captain Nathan Hale is right, a hero of the Revolutionary War. He was spying for the Patriots and was captured by the British and summarily uh, executed. Give me liberty or give me death. Patrick Henry, very good. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Ronald Reagan, yes. Speak softly and carry a big stick. Teddy Roosevelt, yes. That government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Abraham Lincoln, and when did he say that? Yes, that's how the Gettysburg Address ends. Very good. Now, this one I didn't recognize, but I really like it. The greater part of our happiness or misery depends on our dispositions and not our circumstances. Anybody know who said that one? Martha Washington. Martha Washington. I didn't know that Martha Washington said anything. <laughs> but I really like that. that what, a, what a powerful sentiment. You see, words have power. Perhaps you've heard this bit of rhyme before. A careless word may kindle strife. A cruel word may wreck a life. A bitter word may hate instill. A brutal word may smite or kill. A gracious word may smooth the way. A joyous word may light the day. A timely word may lessen stress. A loving word may heal and bless. Words have power. Perhaps that's why I find the opening verses of John's gospel so very intriguing. Have you read this recently? John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus is first known as the word of God and all the power that that denotes. Now, why did John write it like that? What was John trying to communicate to us by introducing his gospel and Jesus as the word of God? Now, folks, I I will never be able to comprehend the full nature of Christ. I'm assuming you won't be able to either. It's just a human mind cannot comprehend the nature of the divine in, in human life. But there are certain terms that are used to describe Jesus that I can at least get a handle on. For instance, I understand when he's called the Son of God, what that's communicating. I understand Savior, Master, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. I get all that. But Word? He is the Word of God? Now, since John was using the Greek language, perhaps it would help us to know the Grecian understanding of that term. Now, when I speak a word, I'm usually referring to a combination of letters that stands for something. That's that's basically it. In other words, if I read cow, I immediately envision a four-legged Guernsey, Holstein, or Jersey. But the word here is logos in the Greek. And in that Greek mind... The the word logos was not merely a collection of letters that referred to something. Rather, logos represented the expression of thought or the very conception of an idea. When a Greek would have read this from John's gospel, understanding that in the beginning was the word, he would have seen this as the omnipotent power to call everything into being. That was certainly in John's mind because he added just a a few lines later, through him all things were made and nothing was made that has been made. The Jewish mind with this word would have viewed the term as the embodiment of wisdom. That also fits the character of Christ, the embodiment of wisdom, of course. But perhaps, perhaps John was simply trying to emphasize how the expression of God's thoughts and ideals culminated in the person of Jesus and dominated his entire earthly ministry. Just think about it, folks. Jesus taught the word with his mouth, exemplified the word with his actions, and in a very real sense embodied the word. God's finest expression he was. God's wisdom in human form. Now, what's the point of using words? It is to communicate or reveal something important. I was reminded again recently how handicapped we are when we cannot communicate through words. Uh, We were in Jordan and had just finished uh, a lunch at a small buffet near the ancient city of Petra. Elsie wanted one of those single containers of yogurt to take with her. Uh, We'd seen others in the restaurant there who had those single containers of yogurt. And so I went to the man who was in charge, and I tried to explain what I wanted to buy. He spoke some English and, and spoke it well. I speak no Arabic, okay? You just need to understand that. 
And so I explained, I tried to explain what I wanted, and he graciously asked, you bought the buffet? I said, yes. He said, then you have yogurt. I said, yes, but I, I, I know that, but I would like to buy my wife a little container to take with us. That's what she wants. You don't need to pay. You bought the buffet. Yes, but she wants just the small container to take with us. But you can have all you want. You bought the buffet. Then he took me by the arm and led me back to the buffet table and showed me this big bowl of yogurt that sat there and said, see, you can have all you want. You bought the buffet. I knew it was a lost effort at that point in time, so I smiled, expressed my thanks, walked back to the table and told Elsie, you either carry out the big bowl or you get nothing. The man had been more than accommodating. He was trying his best. He was being hospitable. <laughs> but for the life of me, for all of my voice intonation, for all of my movement with my hands, for all of my facial expressions, I could not communicate because I didn't have the words that he would understand. In the Old Testament, God used dreams and visions to reveal his will to specific people. Then he revealed messages to prophets who spoke to the masses using words to warn, teach, encourage, and predict the future. But when God wanted to reveal his heart, when God wanted us to understand his deepest desires and his compassion for us, he didn't just use words. He became the word. You see, God was frustrated with humanity making up things about him and creating strange images in wood and in stone. And so when God wanted to communicate who he was and what he wanted with us, Jesus, the word of God, came to reveal the Father's heart. So when Jesus spoke, acted, and lived, the world saw the true image of God revealed to them. Now, now, folks, this passage does not indicate that God simply took up residence in the person of Jesus unlike somebody else. No, this passage indicates that God actually turned himself into one of us, that he was made of plain human flesh and resided for a while among plain human beings. And it was, in fact, through Jesus' human body that God's glory and truth was revealed to us in the finest way. God could not communicate any better the money did through the word who became flesh. Former astronaut James Irwin once said, he said, there is something more important than man walking on the moon, and that is God walking on the earth. And that's why the words of Jesus and the inspired words about Jesus are so important. Jesus revered, submitted to, and respected God's word in every aspect of life. So what does that suggest to us today? Well, let's learn from the example of Jesus. If we're going to walk like Jesus, that means that we learn from his example and practice. Okay? From early on, Jesus would have been trained in the word of God. Every Jewish male youth would have grown up being taught the word of God. As a rabbi, he would have known the law and the prophets well. Probably have most of it memorized. But as God in the flesh, he knew it intimately as its author. Today... We have both Old and New Testaments. Scripture's uniqueness in history, folks, is undeniable. I don't know when's the last time you've thought about all this. I just want to remind you, when you open up the Bible, when you open up Scripture, you're not opening up an ordinary book. 
the, the uniqueness is incredible. It's recorded over 40 by 40 different writers from 40 different generations spanning a, a period of 1,500 years in its writing. It was written on three different continents and it was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. It was written in times of war and peace, prosperity and imprisonment, joy and sorrow. It was written by an adopted prince of Pharaoh who turned shepherd and it was also written by a shepherd, son of Jesse, who became a king. The writers included a fisherman, herdsman, military general, cupbearer to a king, prime minister, doctor, tax collector, poet, rabbi, and more. Written by people of royal birth and common birth, formally educated and experience educated. And yet when you read the story, there is this consistent thread that runs through every book. You ask 10 people, who were eyewitnesses to the same accident to tell you what they saw in that accident a week ago and see how consistent their stories are. So here's a book, 40 different writers, 40 different generations, 1,500 years. And the storyline is impeccable. I stood in the museum devoted to the Dead Sea Scrolls and marveled at those fragments as well as entire manuscripts dated between 100 and 200 years before the birth of Christ. The most resplendent find of the Dead Sea Scrolls has always been the entire scroll of Isaiah, which means all of those promises and prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah were in place at least 100 to 200 years before the birth of Jesus. It wasn't made up. It wasn't self-fulfilling. The pattern has been there from the beginning of time. In a very real sense, the Bible claims to be God's autograph to us, thus making it incredibly valuable. It's more than just words on a page. It is God-breathed. That's the meaning of the word inspired. It is a living oracle. Oracle means it is as if the very voice of God has been reduced to print on page. This is no ordinary volume. This is God's revelation to us. Here's what the Bible claims of itself. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, that's the word inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. 1 Peter 1, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Jesus put it simply this way in Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The more I study the Bible and the more I study history, the more I'm convinced that this book rises above all other books. Publishing a book today requires not only the works of an author, but the editorial skills of one or more editors and the scrutiny of the publisher. I mean, the publisher is going to make sure that there's a profit to be had before that book ever gets into print. And that's just one book. Now consider the writing of the Bible and what all was involved with that. Dr. Dr. James Kennedy says it better than I can say it. Keep in mind that no human publisher commissioned the writing of such a book. 
No editor set forth a plan. No editorial committee oversaw its development. No one distributed an outline to the different authors. Despite these facts, there is every sort of literature in the Bible, including prose and poetry, history and law, biography and travel, genealogies, theologies, and philosophies. And somehow all these elements combine to provide an incredible unity from Genesis to Revelation. Suppose that 40 different artists were to paint a picture without having any idea what the others might be doing or that any others were doing anything at all. Imagine someone collecting those pieces and arranging them all upon a huge wall and the result was a perfect picture that displayed all the features of Jesus Christ. Or suppose that 40 different sculptors without any knowledge of what the others were doing each decided to create a piece of sculpture. And when the pieces were brought together they formed an exquisite statue of Christ. These outcomes are incomprehensible. And yet the Bible is a far greater accomplishment by far. You know, there are a lot of religious writings today that are composed by one person. That's hard to verify. That's hard to validate. But when you, because anybody can write anything they want to write. But when you take 40 different writers, 40 generations, 1,500 years, and it all tells the story of Jesus, there's just nothing like it. Jesus is the word and the written word is all about Jesus. He knew it, he taught it, and he fulfilled it in every conceivable way. Just consider this. The hope of Christ is promised in Genesis. The return of Christ is promised us in Revelation. Genesis begins in a garden paradise with the tree of life and the convergence of four rivers. Revelation ends in a paradise garden with the tree of life and one river flowing from the throne of God. In the beginning, humanity is driven out of the garden paradise and forbidden to eat of the tree of life. In the end, we are invited into the paradise garden and compelled to eat of the tree of life. It is an incredible adventure. But at the very heart and soul of the story is Jesus Christ from beginning to end. And it's not arranged chronologically. It's, it's arranged categorically. And yet Jesus Christ is the key to understanding it all. And it's all important for us to understand, both old and new. The old points to his coming. The new points to the fact that he's come and tells us that he's coming again. You see, the books of law provide the foundation for Christ. The books of Old Testament history show the preparation for Christ. The books of poetry express an ambition to know Christ. The prophets proclaim an expectation of Christ. The gospels record the historical manifestation of Christ Acts relates to the circulation of the message of Christ. The New Testament letters give us an interpretation of Christ. And Revelation describes the consummation of all things in Christ. A preacher friend of mine, Dan Lang, wrote this. He said, the uniqueness of Christianity is rooted in Jesus himself. When all other religious leaders say, I'll show you how to find truth, Jesus said, I am truth. They say, I'll show you the way to be enlightened. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. They say, I'll show you the doors that lead you to God. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the way. Jesus is indeed the key to God's word. And it is his message that we are compelled to share with God's world. Again, I tell you, you can summarize it like this. Someone is coming. Someone has come. Someone is coming again. And that someone is Jesus Christ. So what's the point? What's the big deal about all this? 
Well, the big deal of all this is that if the word was all-consuming to Jesus, and if the word's focus from beginning to end was all about Jesus, then it has to play a priority in our lives. And what kind of a priority does the word of God play in your life right now? So let me wind up this morning quickly here by giving you some uh, just practical ideas on dealing with the Word of God. Number one, if you're going to start reading, studying the Word of God, use an easy-to-read translation. Uh, I like the, the New International Version. I like the New Living Translation. Sometimes I, I even like reading the message. Now, it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase, but it puts it in such unique ways that it gives you an insight and sometimes even a chuckle. I like the New American Standard Bible for, for deep Bible study because it is, it is very detailed. So get a, get a reliable Bible, one that you can understand, one that will make reading fun. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that if you're trying to figure out what Bible uh, to get, uh, that uh, you stop by the bookstore and talk to, to uh, Janet Wingard. Janet is an absolutely incredible resource of knowledge when it comes to the kind of Bible you're looking for. So if you're looking for one that has different kinds of study helps in it, which is also a good way to go, that way you've got some, some uh, commentary built right into the scriptures, she can help you. You can order one online, I get that. But it may not turn out to be the one that you really want. So talk to Janet. Let her share her expertise with you as you're looking for the right Bible to use. Set aside time daily for study. Now, this may come as a surprise to many of you here this morning, but I seldom miss a meal. I eat every day. Most of the time, three, three meals a day. And I enjoy every bite. I never get tired of eating. I'm wondering how we fare when it comes to our spiritual food. I'm wondering if we often appear emaciated in the presence of God because we feed so poorly on his word. I'm suggesting that just as we eat every day, so you need to be thinking about eating from the word, feasting on the word on a daily basis. Uh, you know, you, you can read all kinds of good books about the Bible. You can read books that explain the Bible, but there's no substitute for knowing the Bible yourself. Remember, Jesus quoted scripture to defeat temptation. We talked about that last week. How are we going to handle things that are tough without knowing scripture? Parents, teach your children to study the Bible too. Grandparents, set a model for your grandchildren at a young age about studying scripture. If they learn it when they are this size, if they start reading and studying and begin to memorize and learn, it'll stay with them the rest of their life. Hard for me to memorize anymore. But the things that I learned at this point have stayed with me. How about you? You see, that's why it's important for our kids and our grandkids to learn it now. Here's something else. Learn to visualize, personalize, and memorize. Put yourself into the passage. Put yourself into the setting. Instead of just reading John 3.16 as, For God so loved the world, read it as, For God so loved me that he gave his one and only son. Boy, that, that makes it a far greater personal perspective. And if you're struggling with problems or issues, memorize those passages that will help you deal with the concern. If you struggle with anger, there are a lot of passages on dealing with anger. If, if you're always looking with a negative attitude, there are so many uplifting passages that will help bring back that positive spirit. You see, this is about learning what God wants us to know, not making the word say what we want it to say. So read it in context. Don't take passages out of context. Here's another thing. Develop a plan of study that works for you. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, well, I, I read the Bible through every year. Well, that's wonderful, but that may not work for you. Find something that works for you. And if you're not in the habit of reading, start easy. I, I'd, rather you eat, I'd rather you read a paragraph 
and, and really get into that paragraph and learn and understand it than to read a whole chapter and get done and, and not have a clue as to what you read. You, you understand what I'm saying? And, and if you're starting out, start out with the easier books. Start with the Gospels, Psalms, Proverbs. Do not start with the book of Revelation. Just do not. Add some tools to your study. Add a commentary, Bible dictionary, concordance. Right now, media that we have available here at the church. Uh, and a lot of the stuff is available online that is so very good and helpful. And change up your study habits. You know, you probably don't eat the same three meals every day of your life. That would get kind of boring. Well, do it that way with your scripture study. Study a book. Take the book of Philippians. Awesome book to study through. But then after that, study Paul's life. Study Moses' life. Study Esther's life. Study Ruth's life. Take a study of a character. Then you might want to study a word. Start looking at all the passages that have the word faith or baptism or, or, or love. You see, you, you, you want to make this exciting so that you'll want to keep doing it. And I want you to know this. You will not understand everything you read at a casual glance. You will not understand everything you read if you study it deeply. You just need to come to the conclusion, I'm not going to understand everything in Scripture. I won't understand it all until we get home. We are walking by faith, not by how much knowledge we can accumulate. Gilbert Hyatt wrote it like this. He said, anyone who reads the Bible and isn't puzzled at least half of the time doesn't have his mind on what he's doing. That's, that's, that's true. There's a lot of puzzlement that goes through. At times, you'll be confused by the word, maybe even frustrated by the word. You'll be convicted by the word. You'll be confronted by the word. But ultimately, you will be liberated by the word. Here's the point. You will not know it all. So focus on living out what you do know. If you never live it out, it doesn't matter how much you know. God's word is not about information. It's about life transformation. You say, that's pretty challenging. Yeah, it really is. But remember this, if you aim at nothing, you're bound to hit it. Back in 1962, four months before President Kennedy issued his challenge for America to go to the moon, nearly 1,800 bottles were released across the western half of the Gulf of Mexico. Inside was a postcard instructing the finder to mail it immediately and receive a 50-cent reward. Now, this was part of a government study on oceanic drift. However, with the advent of satellites and then GPS, those kinds of studies have long since been declared obsolete. <laughs> Nevertheless, one of those bottles washed up on the beaches of Corpus Christi just last month, February 23rd. It had been drifting aimlessly for nearly six decades. If we aren't careful, we can be like that bottle. Without God's word, we will aimlessly drift through life without genuine meaning and purpose. Don't carelessly meander from moment to moment. Make Jesus and his word a priority. If you don't, folks, you'll live your life like a washed-up 60-year-old bottle with only a 50-cent message to share. God has provided us with clear direction. I'm telling you, his word is true north. So aim high, and you'll be amazed where the word will take you. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.